study through Matthew chapter 13. This is message number 34 in this series, entitled, Scribes of the Kingdom. Matthew chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 44 to 58, which is to the end of the chapter. And we'll just read verse 44 as we get started. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Forty-year-old Scott Amos moved out of his childhood home in Reno, Nevada, when he was 20 years old, and this was in 1999. And as these stories usually go, his childhood junk was stored in the attic, um, and his mom uh, reminded him frequently of his need to get his junk out of the attic. Well, moved by unknown forces finally 20 years later, Scott decided to clean his stuff out of his mom's attic. And while he was cleaning out, he came across a J.C. Penney's bag. And inside that bag was uh, a, a Nintendo video game that had never been opened. And in fact, the receipt for it was still in the bag, showing that his mom had paid $38.45 or $38 in 19. 88 for this video game. Now, as they sort of talked about it, none of the family had any memory of this game, and especially his mom who bought it. So they finally figured that it must have been intended as a Christmas gift that year and somehow got lost because the receipt uh, was for a purchase date of December the 6th, 1988. So Scott started making some calls, and he got this video game appraised and was informed that it could sell at auction in its current condition for as much as $10,000. So he decided to sell it at auction and ended up selling it for $9,000, and that was in 2019. His mom, however, never got over the shock of thinking that she had spent $38.45 for a video game for a present in 1988 and had misplaced it. Well, I've read of some other similar stories, and, and they are interesting to read, aren't they? You know, you've got an old pile of, of junk, you think it's a bunch of worthless stuff, and you find something of great value in it. A man named David Rose, who worked at a garbage dump uh, in England, and he had worked there for 15 years, when he found a top hat and a cigar and a bundle of old letters, well, he ended up finding out that those had actually belonged to Winston Churchill and were valued at over $13,000. There was a man in Michigan I read about who bought a property, and the seller told him that this 22-pound rock that was used as a doorstop was actually a meteorite that had landed on the property in the 30s. Well, the new owner decided, hey, let's just have it appraised, and it came in with a value of somewhere around $100,000. There was a woman in England, and I'm sure some of you especially will appreciate this one. She bought a ring in the 80s. Now, she wanted to remain anonymous. She's in the official um, report, but she wanted to remain anonymous. She bought this ring in the 80s because she liked it, and she paid $13 for this ring. And 
it was a good-looking ring, and, and the, the way that it was made, um, she just figured it had to be fake because it had a single large diamond setting. Um, they even showed a picture of it um, in the report that I read, and I mean, it, it, I mean, it looks, you know, you know, this come out of a bubblegum machine, where, where, did, where did she get this? 30 years after she bought it, she found out the ring was actually a genuine 26-carat diamond, and it ended up selling at auction for over $847,000. Well, in 2014, one more, in an attic in a house in France, among all kinds of, of junk that was collecting dust, the owners of this house, sorting through, found a Renaissance painting of the beheading of Holofernes, um, which is recounted in the apocryphal book of Judith. And had this painting appraised, now there's still some dispute, it seems, about the authenticity, but it was estimated to be worth between 114 and $171 million. Well, of course, the idea of coming across something of great value that has been overlooked is a part of the parables of this section that ends Matthew chapter number 13. But in this case, the kingdom, which is what these parables are all about, is shown to be of far more value than anything else on the earth, including diamond rings and Nintendo games and meteorites and paintings and so on. Well, at this point, we have covered um, half of the eight parables in chapter number 13. We have seen the ministry of Jesus in speaking in parables as fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We have seen that these parables are specific revelations, particularly of the mysteries of the kingdom. And while the parables have agreed with aspects of the kingdom discernible from the Old Testament, the mysteries of the kingdom are something that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. This means that Jesus was revealing those mysteries or he was giving new revelation about the kingdom to his apostles concerning or rather concealing them from that generation of Israel. And this is how he explained, this is how Jesus explained speaking to the crowds of Israel in parables that they obviously did not understand. Well, this new revelation has to do with the intervening age between the first and the second coming of Christ. And again, when you read the Old Testament, you, you encounter numerous passages where the coming of, of Christ is referred to. And, and reading it now, we can easily see, well, here's references. This is, uh, this is his humiliation. This is his suffering. This is his death. This is obviously his first coming. Um, you know, this is his... Um, conquering, this is his you know, victory over the nations, this is his reigning, this is his second coming. But really when you read in many of those passages, those things are just all sort of mixed together. And, and there's not really a clear indication in the Old Testament that these things are to be separate times, separate comings um, of the Messiah. Well, Jesus didn't establish the kingdom in his first coming. And even from the Old Testament, the establishment of the kingdom is preceded particularly by judgment on all the world and the repentance of Israel that has been gathered. So judgment, we learn, will not come and the kingdom will not be established until this age has ended. 
with the return of Jesus Christ. Now, something else that we learn in these parables is that children of the kingdom, and children of the kingdom are those who, like the apostles, who have received the message, who who have believed, who have repented, who are trusting in, in Jesus Christ. These children of the kingdom will live in this present age, not in the kingdom, but alongside the children of the devil, those who whose minds are blinded, those who reject the truth of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. But at the end of the age, all will be gathered and rewarded or judged when Jesus comes, those that are alive on the earth and and on the earth at that time. Well, these parables also confirmed to the apostles that all of this is from before the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus is not changing God's program. God is not changing his program. He's not altering his foreordained plan for the establishment of the kingdom. The coming of Messiah to Israel has also set events in motion that will culminate in the day of the Lord, judgment on the nations, repentance of Israel, and David's son sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem ruling over the whole world. Now though there will be enemy opposition There will be hard-hearted rejection. There will be wicked pursuits of of this present life and, and all that it has to offer. Despite all of that, the coming of the kingdom will not be hindered or stopped. It will come just as God has purposed it to come. And so all the parables so far have developed these themes revealing that the mysteries of the kingdom and and confirming the prophecies of the kingdom in the Old Testament. So we could say that the delay of the kingdom and the judgment of the nations is not a change in God's foreordained plan, but it is a revelation of his plan that had not been revealed prior to this. So in other words, everything that Jesus says agrees with what the Old Testament says about the kingdom and about the Messiah. But what is being revealed that hadn't been revealed previously, again, is that there will be an age between these two events. Now, the rest of chapter 13 has the final four parables that we're going to look at. And these parables were all told to the disciples privately. And the parable of the net get some explanation in the text and the others are not explained. Now, this also includes the concluding parable, which is somewhat different in that it pertains to the apostles directly. And the final scene of the chapter is one that's somewhat transitional. Matthew's account after this moves toward Peter's confession and then turns to Jerusalem And so this episode that's right at the end of chapter 13 circles back to the end of chapter 12 and provides a a fitting conclusion to the parables by illustrating an important theme in the parables, which is the response of Israel to Jesus, which is one in the main of rejection and of unbelief. So as we look at this final part of this chapter in verses 44 to 53, we read the final parables. And in verses 54 to 58, we read of Jesus' hometown rejection. So we're going to start with the final parables of this chapter, beginning with verse number 44. Again, 
The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. So this fifth parable now is about this hidden treasure in a field. Now, obviously, uh, treasure, in the word that's used here, indicates that that it's something of of great value. And the fact that it's hidden, hidden in this field, means that not everyone sees it. Not everyone knows about it. But this this one finds it. And and he values this treasure above all else. He, He knows what it is that he has found. And so we're told he, in turn, then, sells everything and buys this field. It doesn't steal the treasure, puts it, puts it back, keeps it hidden, buys the field. Now, this parable is pretty short and, and pretty straightforward, especially at this point in the chapter. This parable is about something of tremendous value that is hidden from most people. This goes along with the parable of the sower and the reception of the word of the kingdom. In verses 16 to 17, Jesus told the apostles, the, the, the 12, the disciples, he told them that their eyes and their ears were blessed because they saw and they heard things that previous generations of believers strongly desired to see but did not. And of course, they're blessed beyond that present generation of Israel whose, whose eyes were blind and whose ears were dull of hearing and they didn't see and hear the things that they did. And of course, the reference to selling all is not a command here to sell everything. What it reflects is, a, is those good ground hearers, the ones who are not choked out um, by the thorns, not choked out by the cares of this life and the riches of the world. And that's what we saw earlier in the parable of the sower uh, in that explanation there in, in verse number 22. And then we get this um, companion sort of parable. Um, verses 45 and 46, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So this sixth parable, Jesus tells these, these two together, and this sixth parable makes the same point as the previous one. There's a man searching for valuable pearls, he probably finds many that are not of great value. He finds many maybe that are even imitation or or counterfeit, but he's searching in particular for valuable pearls. And then when he finds one, he responds because he knows what it's worth. He knows what its value is. And just like the previous parable, he sells all and he buys it. Well, again, these are parables about the kingdom. The kingdom of the heavens is like... The point is that the kingdom is now a treasure hidden, unknown, undervalued. And that generation of Israel did not understand its worth because they weren't prepared. They hadn't repented. They hadn't believed. They did not understand. They were looking for something else that they thought was of greater value than this kingdom that John and Jesus and the apostles preached the message of. Now, the other message that comes out in these two parables is, again, that time factor. And remember, as you go through these parables in in chapter 13 in particular, 
They, they have reference to this time factor of, of delay. And the treasure also means sacrifice now, selling all, and reward later, buying that valuable treasure, that valuable pearl. Again, a consistent message throughout these parables. Then we come to verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. So the seventh parable now, which is the, the last of the six parables, which is the, the middle parables. You have the introducing parable, you have the concluding parable, and these six in the middle. This is the last of those six, and it's the seventh overall. And it is about the net. The net that is, is mentioned here um, describes a large dragnet that was used um, to catch fish. So it was cast into the sea, Jesus says, and that it, it gathered up or it brought in fish of every kind. Now, that word for kind that is used is somewhat interesting um, as a choice of words because the word means kin or tribes or nationalities. It brought in every manner of nationalities, a fish. That's kind of a strange way. It's not really the word that you would expect to see used to describe all kinds of different fish, but more likely it would be used of people, wouldn't it? Verse number 48, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So this parable then is like the wheat and the tares. So after fishing, the net was hauled ashore and the good fish were sorted out from the bad and the good was gathered to be kept And the bad was cast away of of no use. Verse 49. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just. So Jesus begins now here to explain this parable of the net to his apostles. This parable, which again is consistent with the parable of the wheat and tares earlier, He describes the end of the world. It's just, he says, this is the way it's going to be at the end of the world. And the word for world here, um, it's not the cosmos, it it is eon. It is the word for age, the end of the age. This is what it's going to be like at the end of this age. Well, what happens at the end of this age? Well, we've already learned in the parables in Matthew 13 that at the end of this age, judgment is going to happen. And, and Jesus is, is going to gather up his good, as it were, into vessels, his wheat into the barn, and the tares will be burned with fire. And, and the same thing is described here. So again, we see this parable continuing this theme of there being a delay of judgment and reward until the end of this present age. And we also see here, Um, that the angels just, they were the reapers in the parable of the wheat and the tares, and here they are the ones that will come forth and will sort out the good from the bad. They're going to separate the good from the bad. And it says in verse 50, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now verse 50 is is essentially a repetition of, 
of verse number 42, uh, what happened with, with the time of the harvest and the wheat and the tares. Describes again the fire, the wailing, the gnashing of teeth. This again is being cast into hell. So when Jesus comes at the end of this age, that day of the Lord, there will be a judgment on the nations and there will be a gathering of the nations and there will be a severing. There will be a dividing and a sorting out of the nations. And all of those wicked and unbelieving are going to be cast into hell. And those alive who are believing and who are trusting in Jesus Christ, they will enter into his kingdom that he establishes when he comes. So again, consistent with the wheat and the tares. And then we get to the concluding part of of these parables with verse 51. Jesus saith unto them, Have ye understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. So Jesus asks them, which is his disciples, his apostles, the twelve. Jesus asks his apostles if they have understood all of this teaching, beginning back with the parable of the sower. Now the word for understood that he uses means to comprehend, to mentally to put together. Jesus asked them if they had comprehended what he had taught, which was the revealing of the mystery of the kingdom and how that goes along with the Old Testament prophecies and descriptions and expectations of the kingdom. Have you understood, have you been able to comprehend, to put these things together that I have taught? And they answer and confirm that they have. Verse 52, Then said he unto them, Therefore, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. So Jesus then gives the eighth, final, concluding parable of this series of teaching. And he speaks of them as scribes instructed unto the kingdom of the heavens. Scribes, the the word itself describes really more of a profession. They were clerks. They were secretaries. They were recorders. They were copyists. Uh, Essentially, this was was a, a broad category of vocation that worked with all manner of written documents. Could be historical documents, could be legal documents, could be religious documents, could all, all manner of written documents. The, the scribes describes that broad category um, of, of, of men in particular that did this job. Now within Judaism, scribes in particular were the copyists of the law. They were the copyist of other important Jewish writings. The scribes were deemed to be experts in the law. They were consultants as well as teachers of the law. The word for instructed that Jesus used is actually a word that means trained or discipled. It is associated with this word for disciples, and it's another form. 
They were taught. In other words, they were equipped. They were prepared for this work. We've talked before about how this concept of, of disciple and rabbi, disciple and, and master, was, was one where the disciple, the learner, would live with the master, would go around with the master, the rabbi, the teacher to different places. And, and it, was, it was more like an apprenticeship where they would be taught, they would be given instruction, they, w- they were also to be observing what the master did, how, how that the master handled the different situations that came up in life. And, and they were to be fully trained and prepared to, in turn, teach others. So again, this is a very strong word, uh, to be disciple. He says, every scribe that has been discipled under the kingdom of the heavens has been taught and equipped and prepared. And then he makes the comparison. The comparison is being like to a man that's a householder that brings out of his treasury things new and old. The householder having a store of things that are old and new is what the discipled scribes were like. So Jesus addressed here his apostles directly. And he addressed these apostles and described them as described discipled scribes of the kingdom. Why? Because to them it was granted to be given knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom. Again, things that had been kept hidden from the foundation of the world, but to them had been revealed. And you say, well, well, yeah, but I mean it's revealed to us too because we're, we're sitting here reading it. It was revealed to them, and that revelation has been given to us. What we're reading is not a new revelation. What we're reading is the new revelation given to them. That's what we are reading and and studying in this particular passage and in this work. So the office work of the apostles meant that they were to teach and to write the things new and old that they had learned. The new that Jesus refers to refers to the revelations that Jesus gave concerning the kingdom. Now, of course, this would ultimately be all things that Jesus um, taught them and and instructed and, and gave them in. And the old refers to those prophecies of the Old Testament and obviously the connection between the two. So this is, this is the work that they were called to. This is the work that they were trained to do. This is the work that they were prepared for. Jesus had already told them that it had been granted to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And he told them also that they were blessed beyond any Old Testament prophet before them to see and to hear what they saw and heard. What was hidden from those Old Testament prophets had been revealed to the apostles that Jesus called. And he said, you are blessed to see and hear the things that you're seeing and hearing. And so what was the result of the apostles 
being trained scribes, discipled scribes of the kingdom. Well, the result is especially what we have here today, the written New Testament that we read, that we learn from what was given to them. And then Jesus finishes the parables. Verse 58, it says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. Now, we've seen this word being used before. It was used in, back in chapter 7 and verse 28 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when it said that Jesus had finished all of that teaching. It's used in chapter 11 and verse 1. The word indicates the completion of an entire sequence of teaching. Now, it's likely um, that Jesus said more in this particular instance than, than just what is recorded here. But despite that, what is recorded here is, is part of an entire lesson you might say, that Jesus was given. Again, in other words, it all goes together. And even though we have parables that are unexplained in this passage, we have parables that are explained, we have enough information that's given to us that if we keep it all together, we can understand what these parables are, are teaching that are not given an explanation in the text. So Jesus finished with this, with this last and final parable where he is addressing his apostles as discipled scribes of the kingdom. He has finished these parables. He has completed this entire lesson that he meant to give, and then Jesus departed. Well, that brings us to the very last part of this chapter that begins in verse 54, when Jesus returns to his hometown and is rejected. Verse 54. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? So Matthew is giving us here an account of Jesus' last visit to Nazareth. Mark also puts this visit to Nazareth near the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Now, Nazareth was the hometown of Jesus where he lived from uh, a a young boy to uh, around 30 years old when he entered into his public ministry as Messiah. Nazareth was a small village. the estimates that I've seen of the population in that day would have been about maybe around 200 people. Uh, it was around 25 miles or so from Capernaum, uh, which had been his sort of his home base during this Galilean ministry. And he goes back to Nazareth and he teaches in the synagogue. Now, we're not given the content of his teaching here. We're not given any, any indication at all of what the substance of what Jesus said and taught in those synagogues was. But like after the Sermon on the Mount, we read of how the people were astonished. That word means that they were in amazement at his teaching. The Nazarenes 
questioned how Jesus could have such wisdom and works. Now, the word for wisdom that they used refers to a broad knowledge. It refers to an, a, an understanding of a wide array of subjects. And the word for works has the idea of powerful works, referring to the miraculous signs that Jesus worked. And they didn't, the, the Nazarenes didn't really seem to be skeptical that Jesus had this wisdom or that he had these works as if, as if he was an imposter of, of, of uh, you know, he, he didn't really, you know, some sort of a trickery or whatever. They weren't skeptical about that. They were questioning how did he have this wisdom and works? In other words, how, how is it that this man, whom we know, whom has grown up among us and, and our families and our children, how is it that this man has this wisdom and these works? Verse 55, they continue. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. So as they are reasoning about Jesus, their questions are centering, you notice, around who he is. Again, not the authenticity of his words or his works, but rather his person, who he is. Carpenters. It's not the carpenter's son. Carpenter is a very general term. And uh, actually um, uh, um, referred to the building and making of various objects with various materials like wood and stone and, and perhaps even metal. And so well, the, Esther, the substance of what they're saying is they saw Jesus no different than them. He is, he's, just the, he's just the son of a tradesman like the rest of us. This was a, a, a poor uh, backwater kind of village and and we read it we read uh in in the gospel of john where you have that reference uh of you know nothing good can come out of nazareth it was sort of a despised looked down upon place you know it was it was the kind of place where everybody in in the region you know made jokes about that place and and being from nazareth immediately made you despised and looked down upon um in in the community so they're saying he's just the son of this of the tradesman that he's no different than us. They begin to mention Jesus' family, his mother Mary, um, his brother James, which is uh, Jacob in in the Hebrew, who was the author of the book of James. He was later the leading elder in the church at Jerusalem. He was an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. Uh, historically, we read about that he was martyred. His brother Judas that is mentioned is, is, is also Jude or Judah in the Hebrew. He was the writer of the book of Jude or the little epistle um, of Jude. Uh, Joseph and Simon, we don't know anything um, about. Verse 56, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? So he has these unnamed and unnumbered sisters. And, and everything here adds up to them saying essentially, Jesus was an ordinary common man in Nazareth. He had no formal education. 
He had no formal training to be a doctor of the law or to be a rabbi. How could he have this? He grew up working with his father, working with his hands. How could he have this? How could this be possible? Verse 57, and they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. They were offended. That means that they stumbled. They stumbled at the person of Jesus. They thought, this is someone we know. We've known. We've known from a young boy. In some cases, perhaps they had had seen him grow up. And in other words, because of that, they did not believe. What, What did they not believe? They did not believe that he was the Messiah. They did not believe that he was the prophesied son of David. They did not believe that he was, as John the Baptist introduced him, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. They did not believe that. They they obviously saw he's got power. That can't be denied. The wisdom of his words is astonishing. That can't be denied. But this cannot be the Christ. They stumbled over his person. And even though they were looking for a Messiah, they believed that a Messiah was to come. They assessed Jesus and said, yeah, but it can't be him. Not, Not that one. Not that one. And then, of course, Jesus refers to what I understand is sort of an ancient proverb, ancient cultural type of proverb that essentially adds up to the the saying that familiarity breeds contempt. That's sort of what it would be in in maybe our our modern-day language. They just just couldn't, couldn't get past that. They stumbled at it because they knew Jesus and his and his family. And this cannot be the promised one. Verse 58, the result, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus didn't work many miracles there in Nazareth in his hometown. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus couldn't. This doesn't mean that somehow once he entered the village limits of Nazareth, somehow his his power waned or departed from him in in some way so that he was unable to do mighty works. No, we're told they didn't believe. So they didn't didn't come to him to be healed. They didn't believe in him. He didn't do many mighty works there. He wasn't willing to do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, unbelief echoes back to that lack of repentance that we read about among those cities of Galilee that Jesus rebuked. And it's interesting also because you get an echo here, this mention of, of Jesus' family that echoes back to, to Matthew chapter 12 when his mother and, and brothers came and, and tried to see him and, and Jesus goes into that thing about, well, who is my, my mother and, and my brother? Um, essentially showing that, that family connection, closeness in that way did not mean entrance into the kingdom. Those that were truly his family are all those that do the will of his father that keep his words that believe in him and do not stumble at him 
Well, the Nazarenes obviously did not see the value of the kingdom because they could not accept Jesus as king. They just could not get past that. And of course, it does make us think, well, what, what do you value more than the kingdom of the Messiah? I mean, we've read in, even in these parables, and we're going to read more uh, along these lines as we go on in Matthew. He's coming back one day, and he's coming back with judgment. And we're told about how the unbelieving are going to be separated from the believing, and the unbelieving are, are going to be punished, are going to be cast into hell, and the believing are going to be rewarded. What would you give up for eternal life and righteousness forever in the future? Well, there, of course, is nothing more valuable than Jesus Christ. There's, there, there can be no greater gift than the gift that God made of his Son to die in the place of sinners. And so there's certainly nothing that is worth holding on to in this world that means not receiving Jesus Christ. And of course, that would include our pride, our supposed or presumed dignity. Nothing more valuable than Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us that we are to seek it first. Give it first place, not trying to serve two masters, but seeking his kingdom first and praying for it.